The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. You know we've been talking about kingdom circles for a few weeks now and trying to, to get us aware of some verbiage as we continue to do ministry together, some understanding that God has given us three different circles of our life that really encompass our whole life. There should be an image on the screen for you to kind of see what we've been doing. The first is family. You and I have family. We're products of family. We're here. So we talked last week in our time in the Word together about what it means that that we engage God's kingdom work in our families and how we can do that together. Today we're going to talk about engaging God's kingdom work in the church. So we're going to talk specifically about what a kingdom church is about what a kingdom church is. But before we do that, I have some questions for you. What gets you excited? What gets you really excited? What are you truly passionate about? What gets you up in the morning? What fires you up like nothing else? And I don't mean fired up in anger. (laughs) We can make lists of that, right? If you watch any of the news this week, then we are fired up to anger some things. But What I want to know is what gets you excited in a positive way? What gets you motivated? Maybe for you, it's the outdoors. Maybe for you, it's the outdoors. You're a hunter. You're a fisherman. You're somebody that likes to be hiking and snowshoeing and doing these outdoor things. Maybe that gets you most passionate. What about starting a business? Some of you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Maybe it's starting a business or working. Work gets you excited. You're willing to get up early for work. You're willing to put in long hours. You're willing to make the company successful. Maybe that gets you excited. Maybe it's investments. You check it first thing in the morning. You check it right when it closes at the end of the day. What's your money doing? Is it growing? Is it growing like it's supposed to? Maybe you love the excitement of investments. Maybe for you it's sports. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Whatever sport's on, you're just excited about it. You're just pumped to see curling this week. Like you are in it. You know what curling is, right? It's a sport for soccer moms. Some of you will get that later when you watch curling. Right? Maybe you love sports. You love your kids in sports. You love watching sports. It gets you excited. What about vacation? Maybe you get excited for vacation. Hold on, I got distracted. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have done that when I paused. That was an unfair image on a day like today, right? That's not even fair. Maybe you get excited about vacation. You just, oh, you think I cannot wait to plan the next vacation. We're going to get there. We're going to work towards it. How about your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? What is your hobby? Does that get you fired up? Does that get you excited? You think ahead on it. You make plans for it. What about scripture? Does scripture get you excited? Do you get really, truly excited to read God's word? Does it move you when you do read it? Do you get excited about it? What about church? Are you excited for church? When you think about church, do you get fired up about it? I bet for most of us, we don't get fired up about it. Maybe it's something you do consistently. Maybe you enjoy it. But, but for many of us, I wonder if it's just not something that we would put on the short list of top three things that get us really excited. What I want to say to you today is it should be. The church should be something that is exciting, that fires you up, it spurs you to devotion because the church has a, a really powerful function. And quite honestly, we've, we've kind of messed it up a lot over the years. Um, I, think, I think worldwide, quite honestly, because we're all humans, we've messed up church a little bit in that we've not really made church something that really 
points us to the glory of God as much as it ought to. Vance Havner made a a quote that I read, and he said this. He said, it's a bad thing or a travesty when we come to church at 11 o'clock sharp to leave at 12 o'clock dull. That's not how it ought to be, is it? Of course, praise God. I don't think our church is that way. We're not perfect, but I think we try to to point our eyes to Jesus and incline our hearts to heaven. But we're going to talk about that today, and I want to invite you I really do. I, I want to take from the bottom of my heart in prayer this week. I want to invite you to grab a hold of a bigger vision for church than you've ever had before. Maybe you've been in church a long time and you kind of see church as that once a week thing you do. It's a routine. It's, but it's really not all that much a part of your life. I want to encourage you to catch a bigger vision for what this could be, okay? So what is the church? What is, about, what is it about? Who is the church? First and foremost, before we go anywhere, we need to understand the church is God's. The church is is God's. Okay? Grab Matthew chapter 16 with me, if you would. When we look at what a kingdom church is, we recognize that this is God's church. We, we don't own these chairs. We don't own these walls. We don't own you. We don't own this. This is all God's. And understand, by the way, the church is not so much the building at all. It's the people. The building is just the place that we come together because it's a blizzard outside. Okay, we could go hang out in a park, but it's kind of cold, and you don't really want to try to turn your pages with a mitten. Okay, that just wouldn't make any sense. So we have to build a building to bring you in because we live in Montana. I heard a church one time in Southern California who just got tired of spending money on building, so he just decided to put up a really big tent, and then they all came to church. Well, in Southern California, when it's 72 on a cold day, you can get, a whole, you can get, a, you can get away with that. We can't do it. But the church is God's, okay? It's his church, and you are his church, the people. So Matthew 16, verse 13, let's pick it up there in the story. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus says to them, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Great, great phrase, right? Incredible truth. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, we'll look at that in just a minute, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? They shall not prevail against it. So says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So listen to verse 18. We got to make sure that we understand this correctly. It's been mis- misinterpreted many times. When he says, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. He's saying Peter is, is the, the Greek word for Peter is Petros, and it really means a stone, kind of like gravel, like a stone, something smaller. But he says on this rock, Petra, which means a rock, that I will build my church on. And he builds his church on the truth of this, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Can we say amen to that this morning? Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And so when the church is built on that, on Christ, the son of the living God, then he says, I will build my church and it's going to be so powerful, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys 
to the kingdom of heaven. God's church is a powerful thing. He says, listen, the church of God has Jesus as the head, Christ as the chief cornerstone, the head of our church, the boss of our church, the leader and the director of our church. He says the gates of hell cannot and will not ever prevail against it. That's incredible. Now listen, we used to think that uh, in in recent days that about 4,000 churches a year close their doors. That's brutal. That's really, really brutal. Now we're starting to realize... I read the research just two or three weeks ago that we're realizing that there's so many churches that don't report. They don't maybe have a denomination that they connect to. They don't report this. When they close the doors, it's eight people who shake hands, close the door, and try to sell the building to a coffee shop. We don't know about those. Nearest we can tell in America now, somewhere between seven and 8,000 churches will close their door. That's insane. I mean, insane. You know why that is? Because those churches stopped making Jesus Christ the boss of their church. They stopped. They stopped saying that that God's word is the compass for our church. They began to say, well, I don't really think this is true. Many of those churches that closed don't believe that the word of God is inerrant and without, without fault. So, you know, I don't think that's the truth anymore. We're going we're gonna to talk about what we think God would be like. We're going to say that, that our hearts and our conscience tells us what God ought to be like. They get caught up in the polity of the church and the politics of the church and stop making the church about what it's supposed to be. And that is Christ in every possible way, isn't it? So we know that the church is God's. Flip to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's see if we can get a little bit more of a comprehensive understanding. Whoops. Talking and not turning the right places. More comprehensive understanding of what the church is you've got Ephesians chapter 2, pick it up with me in verse 19. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you together, the church, are fellow citizens with the saints and your members of the household of God. And you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, that is the church, being joined together, that's, that's us, people, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Did you know that the church is a dwelling place for God? That's what we come together for. He dwells in our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit of salvation. But also when we come and we worship, did you know that Christ is here right now? He can hear us. He sees what we read. He sees what's on your heart. He, he sees your affection for him. He sees that. He wants to inhabit the praises of his people. And so he dwells here. Turn to Ephes- uh, over to chapter 5 in Ephesians, if you would. Paul walked us through this a couple of weeks ago about the parallel between marriage and church. But look at what he says in Ephesians five twenty five: Husbands, love your wives in the same way as Christ loved the church. And he tells us, by the way, how Christ loves the church. He says that Christ gave himself up for her, that is the church. He gave himself up for the church that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Look at verse 29. He says, No one hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. 
Did you know that Jesus nourishes and cherishes church? He cherishes you. He cherishes the congregation of believers. He cherishes the church as we go into the world as hands and feet of him. He cherishes the church. He is the head of the church, the boss of the church, the leader of the church. We're simply stewards and beneficiaries of it. It's a little bit like this. Many of you that have had kids growing up, you know, a kid's walking home from school and uh, he's with his friends and his friend might say, well, where do you live? And he said, well, that's my house over there. It's the second house on the right. That's, that's my house over there. Well, at my house, we do this and we say this. Well, you know, it's not really your child's house, right? Your kid, you don't put the kid on the title of your home, okay? Your child doesn't contribute to the mortgage, If he's over 20, he probably should. That's just a side note. I'm just going to say that out loud really fast and move on. But listen, he doesn't pay the mortgage. He doesn't do the remodels. He doesn't fix the broken pieces. He doesn't fill the refrigerator, although he should. Kids don't do that. The kids live in the house and receive the benefit of the house. It's their house, but it's really the parents' house. Last night, we were having supper together. And uh, we were chatting along, and I'm not sure how we got on this subject. And those of you that know my oldest son, Jeremy, he's a sassy kid. I mean, he is, one day he goes, he goes, Dad, I said, what's that, buddy? He goes, Dad, I'm a sassy pants. Dad, I'm just a sassy pants. I go, yeah, buddy, you're a sassy pants. You are a sassy pants. And uh, so he says, we got into it somehow. And I said, hey, listen, you don't make the rules in this house. And he goes, yes, I do. He says, I'm in charge. Jeremy. That's what he did. And so, of course, he's just being sassy. I know that he knows that. So, so, I, so I said, okay, well, buddy, if you were in charge of the house, what would be the rules, pal? And he goes, well, first of all, it'd be TV all day long. We could watch anything we want, nonstop Power Rangers. It'd be TV. He goes, we'd go out in the backyard, and we could shoot our bows, and we don't even have to have an adult. Oh, wow. And then he, then he kind of got a sidetrack, and he goes, and then we'd shoot the train, and it'd go kaboom. And I went, oh, man, we got a problem child here now. And then Mason, my littlest, jumps in and he'd go, yeah, we wouldn't clean anything. It'd be a mess. I'm so glad my kids are not in charge of my house. That's what happens when people are in charge of God's house. It's a mess. We make up our own rules. It's dysfunctional and it doesn't make sense. Aren't you thankful today that God is the boss of our house? Amen? God's the boss of our church. We want to lean on him, look to him for all of these things. We want to operate as a kingdom-minded church. So what does a kingdom-minded church look like? Well, let's take a look in uh, uh, Acts chapter 2. Turn there with me, if you would. The book of Acts chapter 2. Now, I I will confess to you that the study of what the church is, I could take weeks and weeks and weeks and look at all the stuff that the church is. So today is a little bit brief in that sense. But I can't think of a better picture of what the church is than Acts chapter 2. We see in Acts 2, we've got devoted Christians in Jerusalem going out in the name of the gospel. Peter preaches the word. God does this incredible miracle among them. And then we see in verse 41 that, that there were 3,000 souls added to the church that day. Can you imagine, by the way, if by tomorrow our church grew by 3,000? Like, tomorrow would be a terrible day in the office for me. I would be, like, I would have no idea what to do with 3,000 people, okay? But the church grew and expanded, and so they had to be a church, okay? They had to be a church. By the way, I should have said this earlier. Matthew 16, Jesus talks about the church probably close to a year before the church was ever began. There was no church then. 
It was Acts chapter 1 that he instituted church. So, okay? so this is what God had projected long before the church even came about. It was his idea. Side note, if anybody says to you, church is a man-made institution, it is not a man-made institution. This was not at all a man-made institution. Congregation of believers was not man's idea. From the very beginning of Moses, God said, be together as my people. Okay? I think it's an important thing to understand. Look what he says in Acts chapter 2, picking it up in verse 42. He says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who, were, uh, who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day. So what do we see? What do we see this kingdom, this kingdom church looking like in this passage? Well, it looks like this. It looks like a church who was fiercely and sacrificially devoted to the church. They were fiercely and sacrificially devoted to the church. And you say, no, 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 they were fiercely and sacrificially devoted to, to God. Yes, that's the church. That's why the church exists. To be fiercely and sacrificially devoted to the church. Some of us, if, if I'm honest, some of us kind of struggle with this and we say, well, yeah, but Jim, I can still love Jesus and not be a part of a church. I can still serve and honor God and I don't have to go sit in a building with other people. What I would say to you is, dear friend, you've misunderstood the entire point. If you take the church out of the New Testament, can I tell you how many books and verses would remain? This many. Think about it for just a minute, will you, before we say that? This is how many books would remain in the New Testament if we decide to say church and Christ-following discipleship are not together. You'd have to take all of your New Testament and wipe it out because it's all revolved around God's people serving him together. There's a power in the togetherness. You say, well, you know, the Old Testament, well, okay, let's liken the church to the temple, the, the tabernacle, the gathering together of believers. How much of the Old Testament do you have to get rid of? All of it. God's people have always been together. There's been times of exile and times of this in history, sure. But God's heart and his design has always been to be together. So we devote, we devote to the church, not because the building and the staff need your devotion, but because God calls us to a greater kingdom vision for the congregation of believers to go in his name. Amen? Do you understand that connection? I think it's key for us to get that. So if you take that away, we're in trouble. There's seven things that we see in this passage that we learn uh, that they devoted themselves to. And notice they didn't say that they participated or they, they thought that it was positive. They devoted themselves to these. First is this, to the teaching of the word. They devoted themselves, verse 42, to the apostles' teaching. They didn't devote themselves to what they thought it might be. God trained and called and commissioned the apostles and they fell under their leadership. They listened to that. This is why you come on a Sunday and we teach this, because the Bible shows us to do this, okay? They devoted themselves to the teaching. It's an important thing to be able to do. I always say we can't obey God if we don't know what he calls us to do in obedience. That's why we know the word, so we can obey God. That's, that's the key. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship of the believers. It says they devoted to teaching 
into fellowship, and my personal favorite, into breaking bread together. That's part of fellowship. We do this together. We spend time together. We've really lost this art, by the way. We don't do very good about bringing people into our homes anymore, do we? It used to be a culture in church that we ate in each other's homes and we broke bread together. Now, we kind of don't really like that so much. This is Jim speaking, so I'm like, step aside for a sec. I'd like for us to get better at it. I'll be honest. I'd like for us to get better at having each other to each other's homes and breaking bread together. There's a great fellowship that happens around the dinner table, isn't there? It's a really great fellowship that happens there. Number three, they were doing life together. They were doing life together. There was a unity there. He mentions fellowship in the breaking of bread in verse 42. Look at verse 44. He says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. All who believed were together. When you do life together, then you're together. If you're not together, you can't do life together. And they had all things in common. Now, this doesn't mean that you take 3,000 people plus those that were already devoted Christians and realize that, that all of a sudden we wear the same clothes and like the same music. And I'm sure they didn't binge watch the same things on Netflix just like you, okay? I'm sure that that wasn't a part of the first century church. It's not that. It's not that we have to be exactly the same. The likeness that they had was the, was the forgiveness of Christ. But they did it through walking through life together. Verse 46, day by day. They attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Day by day. They did life day by day. This is why we focus so much attention on life groups. This is why we talk so much about reaching out to each other, to do life together day by day. It worked in the first church. Uh, Number four, prayer. Again in verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. We ought to pray for each other. We ought to pray together. We have to pray for each other when we're not together. It's one of the great commonalities of our life group experience here is that we get a chance to share those prayer requests together, pray together what, what, uh, for, for God to be glorified and for God to work and move in our life. Prayer has to be a key portion of our church. Number five, meeting each other's needs. A kingdom church has to meet each other's needs. Look at verse 45 with me. He says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Some of you are going, where is he going to go from here? Okay, well, the ushers are going to come forward. We're going to pass out a sheet. I want you to put your account number down. And we're going to, no, I'm just kidding. I did that at the 8 o'clock and they went like this, you know. Um, This is a way. It's not the only way. But think about the sacrifice to the church. You want to talk about a devotion to the church? They sold all that they had. And they gave to anyone in the church. Like, let's stay in context. We're going to talk next week about how we love our community. But in context, they sold all they had to meet each other's needs in the church. To to care for each other, to meet each other's needs. If we're honest, our culture does so less of this and more of this. We hoard our stuff for ourselves. We hoard our money for ourselves. We hoard our wealth to ourselves, and we wonder why we're not really sort of functioning as alive as we want to be. That's not God's picture. Dear friends, I'll just be as direct as we can. Your money's not your money, and it's not my money. Your truck is not your truck. Your camper's not your camper. Your house is not your house. Your property is not your property. It's God's. And they understood that in the first century, and they said, we want to be such a church that is so together in unity, we're going to meet each other's needs. I just think that, let's do a quick application. So often in church when there's a need, we want the church staff or the church organization to meet that need 
And there's a place for that, and we're honored to do that. But I want to say to you, when you hear about a need, how about you fill it? If there's somebody that you know of that's fallen on some really hard times, maybe you need to cut the check. Maybe you need to call some of your friends and say, hey, you know what? Would you pray about giving? Because there's a family that really, really needs some help here. We need to do that. Maybe say, you know, I can't give, but I'd be happy to make a meal. I can't do that. You know, I can't do much, but I'd be happy to watch the kids while they go to the doctor appointments. We can do that. We need to be really good. We need to be better at helping each other. We've got to be better at helping each other. We have to do this. We've got to meet each other's needs. Number six, I have to go here, church attendance. Look at verse 46. And day by day, they attended the temple together. Church attendance is an important thing. Church attendance is a real important thing. Dwight L. Moody says this. He says, church attendance is, a vital, is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. Now, I'll just tell you, you know I've always committed um, in, in the years we've been here to being honest. I don't know how not to be. My wife kind of thinks I, would be, I should be less honest sometimes. Um, but do you know what's happening nationwide? It's a challenge that all, all pastors nationwide who are trying to grow are having this conversation, reading this book, engaging in this discussion. And the truth is this, that nationwide church attendance has cut in half in terms of frequency. What it used to be, the average core member came four times a month. What we're discovering now, nationwide, the core comes three to two times a month. And if they came two or three times a month, they come one or two times a month. And if they came one time a month, they come once a quarter. And you know what else we're discovering is? People no longer feel bad if they don't come to church. Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip. Don't misunderstand me there. But I think as a culture, we are now pulling the importance of church away. We're starting to have such an individualistic model of church to say, I can do church. I can be a Christ follower without having to come to church. Yeah, you can. But God doesn't want you to. God's called you to greater. God's called you to more excellent worship. He's called you to more excellent service. So pastors nationwide are trying to go, how do we, how do, we do church now when our folks are coming less? Sports and athletics and scholastics and recreation and vacation and all of these things contribute to this. And we all have to engage the conversation of how do we devote ourselves to the church? It's, it's just where we live. Lastly, they, uh, they participated in relational ministry and evangelism. Relational ministry and evangelism. Here at the bottom of our story, it says that they, uh, verse 46, day by day they attended the church, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. How did the church grow in favor with all the people? And how did they grow uh, those being saved day by day if they only participated in holy huddles of Christians in homes together? Short answer, they wouldn't. The rest of the world would say, well, there's not a place for me there. So what I want to say to you is, they did life day by day. They went to church faithfully and committed. They, they grew, they were in the teaching, they were in all this stuff. But you know what I think happened? I think they invited people to their homes. It says they had generous hearts. You know what generous heart says? Everybody's welcome. We'll throw more burgers on. Yeah, invite the neighbors. Yeah, bring your friend. Everybody's welcome. They participated in this. 
Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, this is a new commandment I give to you, and that's that you love one another. And he says, the way that the world will know that you're my disciples is how you love one another. When we love each other, and we love it, we don't, we don't complete the circle, right? We love each other this way, and everybody's welcome. If you invite people that don't know Jesus to your life group, you should. Look, I get that there's a place for closed life groups. I get that. I understand that. I've taught that. I've practiced that. But it shouldn't all be that way. Some of your church groups, your huddles, your life groups, you need to open that puppy up and invite people and bless them. Be generous. Because that's what they did here. Look at this model. It worked. It says in verse 43, awe came upon every soul. It says in verse 47, there was added to the Lord those were being saved every single day. This happens when the church is alive. The church needs to be alive in Christ. A.W. Tozer says this, 100 religious persons knit into unity by careful organizations do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. Always, he says. If we're going to be a kingdom church, we have to be alive in Christ. Amen? Say it like you're alive. Amen? We've got to be an alive church, friends. We've got to be alive. That's why I want us to worship with joy. I'll be honest. I want us to worship with excitement. Some of you are you, you're scared to lift your hand, man. It's like, the, it's like the craziest thing in the world for you. It's just like, you know, I'm not saying you have to raise your hand to worship, but I'm saying, smile. Let's be alive. Let's share with your neighbors that a live faith is something real. We've got to do this. God's desire is for our church to grow. Did you know that? He wants our church to grow. How does that happen? Here it is in your notes. It happens through me. Not me, the pastor. It happens through you and you and you and you and me. That's how the church grows. Notice in Acts chapter 2 here, the only part that the apostles seem to play here is teaching. Now, we know from 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Scripture that there's a thousand other things that we need to do in ministry. There's a thousand other things that we need to do in leadership. So I'm not saying we don't participate. I'm actually saying that we do this shoulder to shoulder. That's what I'm saying to you. I need to be hospitable. I need to say to the Lord, Lord, how do you want me to help grow your church? How do I engage your kingdom work through the church What does it depend on me? Did you know that you play a huge role in the growth of our church? If you get involved, you play a big part in that. But when the church doesn't grow, what do they do? Who do they look to when the church doesn't grow? The pastor. They say, pastors, what's going on? Pastor, you got to preach better. Pastor, you got to organize better. Pastor, you got to create more attractive ministries. What I want to maybe submit to you today is, That has nothing to do with the growth of our church right now. Yeah, I get it. We need to do our jobs really well, really well. Our job is far bigger than I am able to do. I need the grace of God every moment of my existence. I'm insufficient, I am inadequate, and I am dull compared to what God needs in me. But I pray that God would do something in me that I am not strong enough or wise enough to do in me. But this passage gives me encouragement because I realize that if we're going to continue to grow our church and be a kingdom church that shakes the gates of hell, it's not going to come out of me. It's not going to come from Paul. It's not going to come from Eddie. It's going to come from us as the church. You should say amen to that. It's us together. Are you engaging the church? 
I want to encourage you from the bottom of my heart, engage, get in the game. God's calling you to get in the game. Be a part of this thing. There's a lot of ways that we can do this. Be a part of it. Let's answer the question. How can we engage God's kingdom work through the church? I've got an acronym for you. You can think it's nerdy if you want, and you're probably right. But here's your acronym for the day. It's already written in your notes, so we'll go quick. First, commit. Will you say today that you're going to devote yourself to the church the way the first century church did in Acts chapter 2? We need to commit. It's going to look very different for everyone. If you're retired, you have more time than the person who's working 50, 60 hour weeks. If you don't have children at home, it's going to look very different than those that have six kids at home. So so I'm not going to tell you this prescribed model. I'm going to ask you to go and pray about it. Say, God, where do you want me to be involved? Where? Where do you want me to be involved? You might be a person that's at the church a couple, three days a week. You might be a person that's at the church once a week for worship and finds ways to jump in here and there. You might be a person that uses your home to share Christ with people. You might be a person that does a lot of really unique ministry. Seek the Lord together and say, God, what do you want me to do in your church? He's the Holy Spirit. H, we need to help. We need to help make ministry happen. Where can you get involved? It's very simple. Where can you get involved? Can you get involved somewhere? I would say to you, if you can't, if you absolutely can't, I say this as lovingly as I possibly can to you, then what maybe needs to be adjusted in your calendar? Is it possible that, that maybe you wouldn't say, I'm going to sell every possession and distribute it? Okay, maybe you wouldn't go to that degree, but maybe you'd be willing to say, I can get off of work at 4.30 on Wednesday. I can do that. Because I'm going to come and I'm going to pitch in. I want to help. I want to help make ministry awesome at my church. Maybe you do that. You, you need to understand the mission. You need to know what, we here, what we're here for. You need to know what we together as a family are going into. Did you know what our mission statement is? You drive by it every single time you go out of, the, out of the church. It's go, do, make, teach, and remember. Here's what it is. As a church, we are committed and missional to go into all the world, doing good in the name of Jesus, making disciples of men, women, boys, and girls, teaching them the infallible truth of the glorious gospel of God, and remembering that Jesus is the head of our church. That's what we exist for. That's why Emmanuel's here. That, do you know that? Do you know how that mission goes? Or we need to reach out. We need to reach out to the other people in our church. We need to do that. We need to reach out to those in our church. When you come to church, do you think about reaching out to others? Do you think about shaking hands? I have a dear pastor friend who experienced this story in his own church in 1989. Many of you may remember the Jim Jones cult back in the 60s and 70s. Ended in Guyana, the end of, I think, 1978, with 918 uh, in a mass suicide in that cult. In his church, he had an FBI guy who was the first on the scene. Heavy interaction with this whole, with this whole ordeal. Had been connected for years, involved in years, and, and was there and, and, and connected. And all of a sudden, he had been gone for a while, hadn't been in church in a while. And my friend is preaching one Sunday morning, and he sees this fellow come in through the back door and sit on the back seat. And as he's preaching the word, God says to him, you need to go talk to that guy. You need to go connect to him and see if he's okay. So he closes in his sermon, he prays, and he begins to make a beeline to that guy. And as often happens in church, somebody grabs him and says, Pastor, I got to talk to you about something. Pastor, I got a question for you. And he didn't get a chance to connect to that guy. And that night, he killed himself. My pastor friend said this was a moving moment in his life. 
And he asked himself the question, why would he come to church the day that he planned to take his own life? He was looking for something. What if somebody would have grabbed his hand? What if somebody who had seen him, who sort of knew him a few months ago, would have have grabbed him and, and hugged his neck and said, I'm so glad that you're here today. I've missed you. You matter to me. What if the church grabbed a hold of him and said, brother, you're, you're looking a little bit down today. Is there something we can pray for you about? We've missed you. Nobody connected to him. Dear friends, I know we're past the hour, so please forgive me. But listen, we do not think about our neighbor enough. Sometimes we just assume that everybody in church is A-OK. And if we're sitting in these chairs, we're all A-OK. And life is just fine. And I want you to know it's anything but just fine for a lot of folks sitting here today. It's anything but just fine. And we've gotten in such a bad habit as the American church of coming in, sitting, maybe talk to a friend, and leaving. I don't think you could have got in the church in Acts 2 and not been connected with. I think somebody would have said, hey, we're so glad that you're here. Hey, you matter to us. Hey, you're important to me. Maybe your church engagement needs to be that when you walk in here, you're going to make it your mission to shake hands with some people. Maybe before you walk in from that parking lot, you would say, God, who would you have me connect with today? Lord, who would you want me to shake hand and speak a word of encouragement today? Because you don't know what they've gone through. You don't know what they're experiencing right now. But what if we loved each other that way, the way the church is supposed to be, and that we become this beautiful hospital for people that need help. That's what it ought to be, right? See, we connect to others in the family. We cannot, uh, uh, we've got to connect others, rather, to the family. Maybe for you, that's just inviting someone to church. When was the last time you invited someone to your church? Connect them to the family. Find ways to do that. Lastly, herald the gospel. We've got to herald the gospel. A herald is simply a messenger. We've got to get better at sharing our faith. We talk about evangelism training, and we tend to run away. But I want to encourage you, let's learn how to share our faith. Let's be heralds of the gospel. I got to believe that if many were saved by way, it says they were added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I have got to believe that those small groups who ate in meals in their home had people over and they said, hey, you know what? We just gave our life to Jesus last week. Can we tell you about him? Can we tell you what happened in our life? We got to be willing to do this. Will you jump on to this really exciting picture of God's church today? Will you be involved in God's church Will you say, yes, I'm all in for God's church? I hope that you'll say yes today. I'm going to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Where are you going to connect? What's God spoken to you about today? Maybe you've just been that person that's been faithful and connected, but maybe God is saying to you, I want deeper connection. Maybe God is saying to you, I want you to get in the game. I want to use you to share the gospel with someone. I want to use you to strengthen God's church because God's church is the mechanism with which the world is to be reached with the gospel. I pray that you'll say yes to him today. That's my prayer. Father, I pray that as we respond in just the next few moments, that you would challenge our hearts and incline our hearts to a greater vision for what your church is. God, thank you for the beautiful church that Emmanuel is, and I pray that you would grow her to be Father, just a more kingdom-minded church that together we would be heralds of your gospel shoulder to shoulder, side by side. Prayed in Jesus' name, amen. Billy Graham says this. 
He said, churchgoers are like coals in a fire. When they cling together, they keep the flame aglow. But when they separate, they die out. Isn't that a true picture of the church? When we stay together, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, Proverbs 27, 17 says. When we stay together, when we encourage each other's excitement in Jesus and faith in Christ and obedience to his word and all of those things, when we stay together, then guess what? The church just grows and grows. Grows in excitement, grows in number, grows in discipleship, grows on mission, grows in a lot of ways. But when we pull apart into an individualistic nature, we begin to let God's fire in the church die out. So let's stay together, amen? Let's stay together. Let's be close. Let's be connected. Let's spur one another on to love and good deeds for the cause of Christ and for his kingdom. And we'll do it as a church for his glory, okay? Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.